chapter 2. really quiet in here tonight. It's because everybody is anticipating such a wonderful Bible study, I can tell. That's probably what it is, I'm sure. Not because you're tired or anything like that. Amen. Acts chapter 2, we're continuing on in our series. We began several weeks ago, a couple months ago, a church ablaze, looking at the beginning of the church, the birthing of the church, the giving of the Holy Spirit of God. And uh, just an amazing passage of scripture that we, we uh, began studying and, and uh, love Acts. I've read it many, many times. And in this study, as we've been studying it, there's things we're pulling out. Hopefully, there's things that we can add to our, our knowledge um, and uh, by diving in and looking at and studying also to build our faith. I think it's important that we have a good grasp on the book of Acts because if we have a good grasp on that, we understand what the church is and how the church is to operate, how God can work um, to see the wonderful things that God did and that God can do again. Also to see how the, the church was birthed and, and to be able to differentiate what happened at the very beginning and how it might be some different than it is today. And there are some things that are different. And as we do study this, we're going to be talking about uh, some of the differences. And specifically tonight, we're going to be talking about what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is a controversial subject for many. It's not for me. I don't believe it is when you look at the Word of God, but it truly is a controversial subject um, for some, there are movements that are out there that really, um, I, I truly believe, they misinterpret what the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is, and we'll be delving into that tonight. But I want to begin looking here at chapter number two. Remember, in chapter number one, we see the ascension of Christ. We see the command that he gave there in Acts chapter one, verse number eight. Um, we see how he gave the promise of the, the coming of the Holy Spirit, um, the command for them to tarry to stay there in Jerusalem. We're going to be hitting on some of those again tonight as we lay the foundation for this. But we see all these things happening. And then the last several weeks we've been studying and looking at a great prayer meeting they had in the upper room, 120 that were there, and the people that were present, and how that they got along, they were in one accord, and, and how that they um, uh, were able to um, add uh, Matthias as the 12th apostle and uh, to replace Judas in looking at um, all of that, and to, to see how God worked through that. And so tonight, we're picking up kind of there. Um, we see now that they've tarried, and now in verse number 1, it says, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues, like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were filled with the Holy Ghost, and began to speak with other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under the heaven. Now, when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded, because that every man heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue, wherein we were born? And then we see it lists all the different places that these people were from. And I'm going to jump down for the uh, sake of time in verse number 12. And here we see that, that they, they, they were hearing in their own language. They were hearing, look at verse number 11, uh, Cretes and Arabians. We do hear them speak in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, 
what meaneth this? Others mocking said, these men are full of new wine. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that we would tonight once again continue to grow in our faith and our understanding, Lord, as we study your word. I pray that we would rightly divide it. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand. And, and Lord, we do pray that we would desire revival and empowering of your Holy Spirit in our life. Lord, a filling. We would allow you to have all of us. And I pray, Lord, you would help us to never be led astray in this doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Help us to understand that the truths that we're studying here uh, give me wisdom. Allow the words that come to my mouth uh, and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. R.A. Torrey, I love R.A. Torrey. If you've read any of his works, uh, great, I would recommend him. But you know, even a man like R.A. Torrey sometimes can misspeak and say the wrong thing. On one occasion, R.A. Torrey was sharing a conference with a man named Dr. White. And as they were talking together, Torrey said to White, he says, what we all need is a new baptism of the Holy Spirit. Hmm. Dr. White, he whispered, you mean filling, do you not? Well, later, Torrey called at White's private home and he acknowledged it was best to speak of things of the Holy Spirit by their proper names. It's so true. We need to be very careful that when it comes to doctrinal issues that we say the right words and we don't misinterpret what's being said. There are a lot of things in, 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 uh, when it comes to using vocabulary. I want you to just think with me for just a moment and get your minds thinking. What are some things that we have to be very careful of when it comes to the words we use when it comes to the doctrine of the Word of God? Can you think of anything that if you use the wrong word, it could change the meaning? Anybody think of one? I know I'm kind of throwing this out there, but I've, I've, I've thought of many today. Can you think of one? Anybody? The wrong word? What's that? Yeah, young maiden instead of young virgin. Absolutely, it has to do with translation of the Bible. No doubt about that. There's a big difference there. No doubt about that. How about this one? How about the second coming? And intertwining that with the rapture. Is that a problem? What's the problem with that? They're not the same. Exactly right. They're not the same. And that's something I will tell you, for me as, as a young person, when I was growing up, I would read Matthew, let's say chapter 24, and I'd read through and I'd see what Jesus was talking about there. And I misunderstood what was being said in Matthew chapter 24 as talking about the rapture. The problem is it doesn't fit then with the rapture and it messes up things when it comes to seeing uh, premillennial, when you see the pre-tribulation, all those different things. If you use the wrong words when you're reading the word of God and you have a misunderstanding of truth, it messes things up. What's another one you got to be careful of? For me, one that I slip back and forth with and I try to correct when I do it is hell. Where will people spend eternity when they die if they've lost, they're lost without Christ? Where will they spend eternity? It's kind of a catch-22, isn't it? Where is it? Does anybody know? The lake of fire. That's exactly right. Hell will be cast in the lake of fire, the Bible says. So, in reality, it might not be wrong, but we just need to be careful about that. I've corrected myself several times on that because my whole life, I'm talking about a young person growing up, always talked about you're going to go to hell, you're going to go to hell, you're going to be separated from God. And so we need to be careful, but using proper words is important. Vocabulary is important. We know that's important. Let's say if you're a doctor and you're asking for a certain uh, instrument to be able to do an operation, when you say a certain word, you're expecting a certain instrument to come. It, it, it's not arbitrary. It does make a difference. Uh, when Brother Doug is asking, uh, Brother Doug, Brother Tim is asking for a tool for his dentistry, and he asks for somebody to hand him a tool. Brother Doug, Dr. Doug is what my mind just went to. Yeah, I'm a little rusty here. Anyway, you, you want them to give it whatever it is. It, it matters. Words do matter. 
We can make mistakes and we need to correct them. But when it comes to doctrine, we need to be very sure about the words that we use. Be very sure about it. And, and this is a big one. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is a very big one. And getting that changed up with the filling of the Holy Spirit of God. Now you might say, I have no issue with that. But there's a lot of people that do. And there are going to be people that will come into your life that are going to try to trip you up about those exact, that exact thing. About the filling of the Holy Spirit of God and the baptism of the Holy Spirit of God. And so what does baptism of the Holy Spirit really mean? What is it talking about? We're going to talk about that. Before we get into that, tonight we're going to be looking at a lot of preparation for getting into this, this discussion. And the first thing I want us to talk about is this. When we talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we need to go back and, and, and look at what was happening there in Jerusalem. Imagine that you were in Jerusalem. Imagine the time of year that it was. Does anybody know the time of year that it would have been if Pentecost there in Jerusalem? Anybody want to take a guess at the time of year? Not by the Jewish calendar month, but by our month. Does anybody know? Any idea what it would be? So when was Easter? Or when was the Passover? When was it? What month would it be in our months? Does anybody know? It is the same as it is now. It would be, be in March or early April. Uh, Nisan or Nisan would be the, the month that it would have been. It would have been during the month of the Passover, um, the, the special uh, uh, um, Passover um, celebration that the people would have had there in that time. And so then the, the month of, uh, of sort of been approximately the month of March or the month of April. And then you have to add, after that, you have to add uh, 50 days after that. And so it would be about the time of June. So weather would have been good. This would have been probably for people that were Jews or Jewish proselytes. Those would be people that became Jews, not by birth, but by uh, being converted into Judaism. It would have been the time when probably the majority of the biggest event would have happened would have been at Passover because the roads would have been good, time would have been a good time of the year, people would have been traveling. Um, many think that, 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 people, that, that the celebration of Pentecost perhaps would have been even greater in number of people coming from around the world at that time than even the Passover would have been because of the traveling conditions in that day. And so there's a lot of people that have been there. It would have been a beautiful, perhaps, day in, in June around that time of the year for us. Many people would have been, I mean, it would have been a very cosmopolitan. Lots of people from all over the world. Now, how did Jews get all over the world? How did Jews or proselytes get all over the world? Just think about that for a moment. Anybody? How do you know? How do we, where'd they come? How did they get around the world? We know they came from Israel there, but how did they get spread out so much? Anybody? What's that? Yeah, the tribes were scattered because of what? Because they disobeyed God. They were brought into captivity, and many of them were scattered. There's another thing that happened. When they were scattered, God, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them are they called according to his purpose. You go to the book of Esther, and you find out that because of what happened in Esther's life, there they are. She's in great captivity. She's, I mean, she's married to a king, and her people are going to be destroyed. You remember the story and how that she had faith to believe in God. And as a result of her taking the stand that she did, many people believed. And if you look at the end of the book of Esther, it talks about that throughout the, the world, the, 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 basically the religion of the Jewish religion was passed throughout the world. And so many, many people throughout the world were saved. I say saved. Were, would follow after the great I am, the one and true God. And I say that saved because in that day it was by faith and believing. And so there was people from all over the world that came to Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. They were there for that great feast. Um, and so, but to understand that, I want to go back and look at it for a moment. I want to look at, at what was Pentecost. What is it? 
And so for us to get a proper interpretation of Acts chapter 2, we need to understand what Pentecost is all about. The, the, the Greek word for Pentecost, it means 50th day. That's simply what it means. The Jews had uh, a feast called the Feast of Pentecost because it took 50 days. It was 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits. And the, first, the Feast of First Fruits followed the Passover. And so there are three feasts that are mentioned in Leviticus chapter 23. I'm not going to read them all tonight, but you can look at it later if you want. But in Leviticus chapter 23, we see three feasts. And I want to just mention them briefly tonight to help us understand what's going on here. And, and the reason why I'm doing this is because everything that happens here in Acts chapter 2 is a fulfillment of prophecy. Everything that's taking place here in Acts chapter 2 is happening because God is revealing to his people that Jesus Christ was the Messiah that Jesus Christ is who he said that he was, and the apostles now are speaking in the power of God, in, in the power of the Holy Spirit of God, and it's a fulfillment of prophecy there at Pentecost. And so we need to understand that. We need to keep that in mind. But the first feast that we see in Leviticus chapter 23 is the feast of Passover. Passover. Think about the Passover feast. What were they celebrating? Help me out. Passover was what? What was the feast of? What was it remembering? What was it? Yeah. Okay, that's true, but that was the end, that was the actual Passover. But the Feast of the Passover goes all the way back in the Old Testament. It starts way back in Exodus. Yeah. Absolutely. So they had to put the blood over the doorpost and on the lentil. They had to cover it. It was a passing over of the death angel. And remember, that was the plague, the, the final plague there to set God's people free out of Egypt. And so it, there was the, a feast that was set up. God wanted them to remember. God wanted them to never forget that he had delivered them, that it, it required, though, the shedding of blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no what? Remission. There needed to be that shedding of the blood of the innocent to pay for the, 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 the sin of the guilty. It's always a picture. It was all foreshadowing of what Jesus Christ was going to come and what he was going to do. And so we had the feast of the Passover, and um, by the way, what is our Passover today? Is it Sunday morning? Is that our Passover today? Uh-oh, you guys aren't real sure about it, so we better make sure of it tonight. What is our Passover? Is it Sunday morning, yes or no? No, absolutely not. We do not have a Passover we observe on Sunday. It is not the Christian Passover. It's not. People call it that, but it's not. That, that's one of those things we've got to be careful about. Remember the words I talked about earlier? we got these people called Seventh-day Adventists because they are using the word Sabbath and they're saying that those Christians that meet on Sunday are not true followers of Christ because we're supposed to meet on the Sabbath. And yet the Word of God tells us this in 1 Corinthians 5-7. Look what it says on the screen. Notice what it says. Paul says, For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. So what is our Passover? Jesus Christ is our Passover. The Lord Jesus Christ is our Passover. He fulfilled the law. All right? He is our Passover. And so it's interesting. So not only was the Passover lamb in Exodus chapter 12 a picture of Christ, but it was also an indication that Christ would die on Passover, the, the 14th of, uh, of Nisan, uh, which corresponds to a day, like I said earlier, late March or early April. We still have those days. That, that's why we, the date of, of Easter changes every year. Um, we're following that same calendar for that. And so there was the Feast of the Passover. The, the second feast that we see there is the, 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 the Feast of First Fruits. 
Um, you find that in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 9 through 14. This feast was on the day after the Sabbath following the Passover. So what is the day after Sabbath? Sunday. Very good. We're so smart. Saturday is Sabbath, the seventh day of the week. Sunday is the first day of the week. It is the fruit, the, 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 the Sabbath, um, the day after the Sabbath was the Passover, excuse me, the day after Sabbath, the, the Passover, we had the Sunday after, and that's the, fe- the Feast of first fruits. Let me get my tongue untied here tonight. The Feast of first fruits, And the Feast of first fruits is a picture of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Of course, we know that Jesus Christ rose on the first day of the week. All of this was a picture of that prior to Christ ever dying, being our atoning sacrifice. Prior to Christ raising from the dead on the first day of the week, they had these feasts that they were looking forward to that. It was something that was going to happen, and they would observe that. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 15, 20. He says, but, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. Who's that talking about? The first fruits of them that slept. Who are them? Okay, it is them. But it's not just them. It's his first fruits of. It's us, too. We were dead. He rose from the dead. First fruits of them and that, that slept. It's talking about the fact, and if you look at that chapter, it's talking about the resurrection. The whole thing's talking about the resurrection. And so, just as the feast of the first fruits showed that the rest of the harvest would be good, so Christ's resurrection shows that we will also be resurrected. If there is no resurrection, then why do we even believe? Why do we even come to church? And, and Paul is really making that point. He's talking about Christ who's risen from the dead. He makes the connection with the first fruits. That first fruits is talking about the, the connection of the feast of first fruits. And Christ said this. You remember in John 14, 19, he says, Because I live, ye shall live also. And so he, he paid our sin debt. He rose again. And, and it, it's a picture of the, the feast of first fruits. And then there's the third feast that we see in Leviticus. It's the Feast of Harvest. Leviticus uh, verses 15 and 16, we see that there. Fifty days after the Feast of first fruits came the Feast of Harvest. Um, and it's called that because it ushers in the harvesting period. It's a time of the year when the harvest begins. This feast was also known as, what's it known as? Another word for it? Does anybody remember? But if you've been paying attention to what I'm talking about today is... Pentecost, 50 days after. It's also known, the, the, the Feast of the Harvest is also known as Pentecost. And that day they would have called it Pentecost. We see that happening here. Um, the day of Pentecost, 50 days after. 50 days after it, uh, um, um, it, it, it happened. Um, so they celebrated the completion of the harvest in advance. They were celebrating the completion of the harvest before they had done all the harvesting. It was the beginning of it, but it was a celebration of it. They were trusting in God. Now this feast, it it predicts what happened on the day at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. We see uh, what happened. Once again, we go back and we look at how the Lord was giving these feasts. They're all a picture of what was going to happen. You see, the Son, the Lord Jesus, He honored the Passover by dying. The Father, he honored the feast of firstfruits by raising Christ from the dead. It was the first day of the week. The Holy Spirit honored the feast of the harvest by coming on the disciples of Christ as they waited in Jerusalem in that upper room. All of this we see a fulfillment of prophecy. And so the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost to fulfill prophecy. We're saying all of this. We're building this foundation. There's a reason for it. We need to understand that Pentecost was a predetermined 
epoch in the mind of God. It was a predetermined epoch in the mind of God. It was a predetermined day, a time that had specifically God had chosen for that to happen, when the Holy Spirit would come, just as the birth of Christ was, just as the death of Christ was, just as the resurrection of Christ was, just as now the Holy Spirit being given. God had it all, and it's amazing when you go back and you see the connections, when you go back and you look at the Old Testament, how God was foreshadowing all of these things. And here's the thing, if you were a good Jew and you knew the Old Testament, you studied it, you've been taught, and you went to synagogue, and you've been taught by the rabbi, they would have been being taught about these things concerning their Messiah. And what's, that's what's so amazing. And when the Messiah was right there, they denied him. Now, we know many of them denied him because of the power issues they had, because they denied, they did not want to give up the power. And, and, but here it was, all in front of them, a fulfillment of prophecy. So God had it, a special day. Now, this does away with the notion held in some circles today. There, there's many people that they say that you have to wait to experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That you must go through stages of Pentecost in order to receive the Holy Spirit. Now, if you haven't heard that, you might, chances are you probably will. If you ever get in contact with other people that are in different churches, there are some churches that teach this. Primarily charismatic and Pentecostal churches teach this. They talk about how that you must tarry, you must wait, you must ask for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And if we look back at what we've already studied in chapter 1, when we looked at how the disciples, how that they were commanded, what they were supposed to do, and how they were to wait, and how they prayed, they never prayed for the Holy Spirit to come. I mentioned this a couple of studies ago. Why didn't they pray for the Holy Spirit to come? Why didn't they? It was already promised. When God promises something, you don't have to pray about it. You can thank God for it, but you don't need to pray that God will do it. If God says it, Listen, it's going to happen. It wasn't something that they prayed for. And so we, it is true that they did tarry. There's no question about that. But that was an obedience to Christ's command. They were even told the precise spot they were supposed to tarry. Does anybody remember where they were supposed to tarry? Anybody remember? Yeah. Okay, they were in the upper room. That's true, but there's a specific city. Let's make it more of a city. Do you remember? You probably do. What city was it? All right. Go to Luke chapter 24, verse 49. Luke 24, verse 49. What city did Pentecost happen in? Somebody know? Okay, just making sure. I'm starting to get a little worried. And behold, I send the promise of my Father, chapter 24, verse 49, upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. All right, so here's a command Christ gave them. I'll go to Acts chapter 1 now. This is really a continuation. This might be Luke, chap- Luke 2, but this is Acts chapter 1, verse 4. Look, if you would, at Acts chapter 1, verse 4. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. But John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost, not many days thence. So he said, tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem. That's interesting. So there are people today that say that you have to tarry, you have to wait, you have to ask for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Well then... We see what Christ commanded them to do. They did tarry. 
But he also told them where to tarry. Where did he tell them to tarry? Second time around, right? Jerusalem. So if somebody says to you, you have to tarry for the Holy Spirit of God, wouldn't it be logical for you to ask the same question of where should I tarry? Where did Christ tell us to tarry to receive the Holy Spirit of God? If we're going to follow that mindset, where would it be? Jerusalem. I mean, if they really want to follow Christ's command to receive the Holy Spirit, then why wouldn't they go to Jerusalem? Because it's not for us today. It was specifically for his the disciples there, the apostles that were there. He says, tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem. And, you know, a more important question to where you're tarrying is, is it necessary to tarry? That really, for us, is a more, more important question. And that all depends. What does it depend on? Well, it depends on whether or not the tarrying of the disciples caused the descent or the baptism of the Holy Spirit of God. Did the tearing of the apostles cause the baptism of the Holy Spirit of God? Yes or no? Not at all. Not at all. Now, they could be obedient and experience what God had promised, but God was going to do it either way. They could be part of what was going to happen on that day. He told them what to do. They could be obedient to it, but they did not have to do that. I mean, literally, it was, it, it's not something that happened because they tarried. It was going to happen anyway. Remember, it was a date that God had planned. God had already planned it out. It was, already, it was a day that was going to happen. It was going to happen. The Holy Spirit didn't come on the day of Pentecost because the disciples tarried. It's not because they prayed. It's not because they met certain spiritual requirements. The Holy Spirit came on that day because it was the day God had planned to fulfill prophecy. The appointed day had arrived. The Holy Spirit came. Now here in chapter 2, it's all about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And there are considerable differences of opinion surrounding this subject, like I mentioned earlier. We're going to be talking about that a little bit over the next couple of weeks. I would encourage you to, to be part of this discussion because how many of you all have, have ever known somebody that was charismatic or Pentecostal? Raise your hand. You've known somebody. Okay. So many of you have. I have. And this is something that definitely is a, an area of uh, opinion when it comes to this. I say opinion because there, people have a different look at this. And I believe it's an improper um, handling of this chapter from the Word of God. And the thing is, this chapter, when it talks about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it is a linchpin of their doctrine. And when I say linchpin, I mean it holds all the other charismatic teachings together. It really is kind of the, the foundation that they get all these other teachings about the charismatic movement, about um, being charismatic in their, their religion or their, their, the way that they, they hold church. They also believe that certain physical manifestations show that a person has experienced this baptism. They believe that there, there are actual evidences of you being baptized by the Spirit that shows itself physically. Anybody know what some of those are? Things that they would say is an indicator that you have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit of God. Yes, Rodney. Absolutely. Speaking in tongues. What kind of tongues do they say? Are they known or unknown tongues? Unknown tongues, not scriptural at all. By the way, that being an indicator is not scriptural either, but that's one of them. And, and that used to be pretty much the only one, but there's been ones that have been added to that. There's other ones now. I don't know if you've ever seen it. And I, I was at a church one time. It was a charismatic church. I got there right at the end of the service, for the best part, I guess. Um, but anyway, during the, during the invitation, <laughs> there were people that were standing up and began to speak in tongues. It, man, it made the hair stand up in the back of my head. All I knew is, man, you know what? My spirit wasn't bearing witness with that. It, 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 it was spooky to me. And then there were people that began to fall. 
being slain in the spirit. You ever watched the, uh, anything on TV or the, or the, I forget what his name is. He goes like this and the whole crowd just falls over. Oh my goodness. I could see a preacher having some bad breath in that happening. But you know what? Having the power, to, I'm sorry. Anyway, you know what they would say about what I just said? That I was blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. They'll use that when you talk about stuff like this. Be careful now. You're going to blaspheme the Holy Spirit of God. You know, what's worse, me saying what I'm saying or misinterpreting the Word of God? What is more blasphemous to the Holy Spirit of God? Yeah. What is more blasphemous to, to, to the Holy Spirit of God in, in misappropriating what He is here for to do and who He is to lift up? We're going to talk about this in the next couple of weeks. There's a reason why the Holy Spirit came, and Christ was very specific in what he was going to do and what his job was. And people today, they use this as a linchpin of their belief, and they jump into a lot of different areas of teachings and misinterpreting of the Word of God because they get the foundation wrong, the very beginning of the church. They get the foundation wrong when we receive the Holy Spirit of God and at what point in time. They're, it's so crazy that now there's, like I said, being slain in the Spirit. You ever heard of the jerks? Not people. I'm not talking about people now. I'm talking about people that get slain in the Spirit. They get the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They start jerking uncontrollably. You think I'm crazy, but there was a movement going around in our country several years ago. You could read about it. Um, Charles Finney talks about it. And we're talking about years ago, people got the jerks. They started jerking and uncontrollably just couldn't stop. The Holy Spirit of God had gotten a hold of them. I don't know what it was. But I can tell you this, the Word of God doesn't tell me that people... Now, does the Holy Spirit of God work in ways we don't understand in a lot? Yes, I agree with that. But it doesn't work contrary to the Word of God. We need to understand that. Um, there's, there's so many things that they try to... People falling into trances. Um, they consider these proofs of the baptism of the Holy Spirit of God. And it's interesting. If you were to look at charismatic statements of faith, there's a typical... Most Pentecostal and charismatic uh, statements of faith, they include... I want to just share with you an excerpt from one of them. And most of them will include the same thing. Let me share it with you. This is a quote. All believers are entitled to and should ardently expect and earnestly seek the promise of the Father, the baptism of the Holy Ghost, and fire according to the command of the Lord Jesus Christ. This was the normal experience of all in the early Christian church. Now notice it says the command of the Lord Jesus Christ. We just read the command. What did the command say? Terry here in Jerusalem, I'm giving the Holy Spirit, right? All right, the command. Now, the Bible does talk about being filled with the Spirit. There's no doubt about that, but it was a command. It's a command of the Word of God, but the Apostle Paul said it in Ephesians chapter 5. All right, so, but what they're talking about here, obviously, is what the scripture we read earlier about tarrying and the Jerusalem. And, and once again, let's continue on. It says, with it comes the endowment of prayer, of power for life and service, the obtainment of the gifts and their uses and the work of ministry. This experience is distinct from and subsequent to the experience of the new birth. Anybody see any problem with this? Let's just talk about it for a moment. Anybody see any problems with what they're saying here? You see anything that looks kind of off to you? What's that? Yeah, first of all, it's unrelated. It's something that comes after a new birth, right? Good. What else? Experience. Yeah. When I see those words, I go, hmm. Now, yes, I've experienced salvation, but that's not my doctrinal belief. 
My doctrine is based on the Word of God. It's not experience. We need to be very careful when we allow for our experience to dictate what our beliefs are. What should be the final authority for what we believe? What is a Baptist distinctive? It is the Word of God. We believe in the final authority for all practice and faith from the Word of God. That's what Baptists believe. That's a distinctive that we have. That's one of the reasons why we're a Baptist church. This is the final authority. Right here it is. And when people start talking about experiencing it, and saying it's distinct from the experience of the new birth, the experience of filling, being filled with, or the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the experience of the new birth. And so the teaching here, once again, is that a person can be saved. Of course, this, this is this particular belief. You can be saved, but never experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit of God. You can be born again on your way to heaven, but never experience being baptized with the Spirit of God. Now, there's so much wrong with that. By the way, who does the cleansing? Who does the changing? Who does the filling? Who makes me a child of God? Who seals me on the day of redemption? What's the answer? The Spirit of God. The Spirit of God does all of those things. If I never experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit of God, how can I even say I'm saved? So there are some charismatics that say if you don't experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you never truly were saved. How many of y'all have spoken? Don't raise your hand. Have you spoken in tongues lately? John's got his hand raised back there. John, what did you say in tongues? <laughs> he probably does speak in some unknown tongue at times, but not the kind we're talking about. I mean, you know, I'm gibberish and stuff like that. You know, kids can be. Sometimes I hear gibberish. You ever hear something and you hear it wrong? Yeah, I won't go into that right now. I did that on my trip. I'll tell you sometime about that. Sometimes you've got to be careful how you react to something you think you heard. It's, it gets you in a lot of trouble. Anyway, but, you know, not, I have never spoken in, an, in a, a tongue that was not my language. I've never spoken in an unknown tongue, which I don't find in Scripture anyways. Even if I could be as eloquent as an angel and speak in the tongue of an angel and don't have charity, I'm a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. That doesn't mean that I'm able to speak as an angel. It means that even if I had the ability to do that and I didn't have God's love in me, it'd be worthless. It'd be nothing more than noise to people. That's not what the Word, word of God is not talking about that. But in this time, in this day, back here in Acts chapter 2, we definitely see they spoke in these languages from all of the known world. People, I say spoke, did they? What were they probably speaking in? What language? Does anybody know? Aramaic. They were probably speaking in Aramaic, but people were hearing it in their own language. They were hearing it in their own tongue. They, that, it was a miracle of hearing, not of speaking. They were speaking, and they heard the word in their own language. They were all listening, and they heard this, and, and they were amazed by it. Aren't these Galileans? People in that day, Galileans, would have spoken Aramaic. So it's an amazing thing. But people, they base it on their experience. They say, if you haven't. So they have two levels. Let's say that they believe you can be saved and not experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What that means is you have two-tier salvation. You have those that have and those that have not. You have those that are going to heaven in first class and those that are going to heaven on, what's the other class? Not business, but what's that last class you get on an airplane? You ever been on one of those? You're in the, what's that? Coach. Yeah, coach, man. You're all the way in the back. Your seat's like this big. The person sitting next to you is this big. It's terrible that I'm that guy next to you. Anyway, I mean, it's terrible. <laughs> uh, some of you are like, uh, all right. But, you know, some people are going to heaven in a different class. I'm having some fun with this, but that, that's the silliness of it. Like somehow that you're going to be able to get the, the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit and somehow you're going to get a different Holy Spirit power in your life because of it. You don't find that here. 
It's so wrong, and we're going to be breaking it down over the next couple of weeks as to why it's wrong. Let me get through what I have tonight, though. And um, so what does the Bible say? It doesn't matter experience. It doesn't matter what the Pentecostals say. It doesn't matter what Joe says over there. It says, what does the Word of God say? We must always go back to the Word of God. Always go to the authority of Scripture, not to your experience, not to determine truth from any other matter but the Word of God. So our subject that we've been kind of laying it all out tonight for is what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? The first point I want us to look at, and the only point we're looking at tonight is this, is the promise made of this baptism. Let's go back before. Let's look at the promise that was made about it. Let's look at Scripture. There are a number of passages that look forward to this baptism. They speak of the baptism of the Holy Spirit as yet to be not experienced or bestowed. It's something that's going to happen. It's something that's going to happen down the road. Many verses of Scripture. And the first promise that was made is at the commencement of Christ's ministry. We see it very at the very beginning at the Gospels, the very beginning of all the Gospels, we see some verses that talk about this baptism of the Holy Spirit of God. It's interesting. And all of them are from John the Baptist. He speaks of it. Um, let's just look at them very quickly. Um, there's a difference between um, John's ministry, John the Baptist's ministry, and the coming ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Anybody that says there's no difference between John the Baptist's ministry and the ministry of Jesus Christ is contrary to the Word of God. Look what it says there in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. Notice what it says. Now when I say ministry, I'm not talking about another faith or another salvation. I'm talking about ministry, all right? Matthew 3.11 says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. How did John the Baptist know about that? Think about that for a moment. How did John the Baptist know about that? Now, Obviously, he had the Holy Spirit within him. We do know that. The Bible tells us that, which was an unusual thing, Old Testament. God had revealed that to him, but it was also, I, I truly believe this is something that, this, like I said, fulfillment of prophecy, fulfillment of prophecy, fulfillment of prophecy. These were things that the Jews were looking for to know the Messiah had come. How about Mark chapter 1, verse 8? Look at it. I indeed have baptized you with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. There it is again. How about Luke chapter 3, verse 16? John answered, saying unto them all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. There it is again. John chapter 1, verse 33. Notice what it says. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending, and remaining on him, the same as he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. Who's that person? Come on now. Who's that person? Help me out. Say it if you know it. Good. Absolutely. The Holy Ghost. We see there at the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see God the Father. We see the Holy Ghost. We see God the Son. We see the commencement of his earthly ministry. And it's speaking about it here. And how that the Jesus Christ, the same as he which baptizes with the Holy Ghost. How many people did Jesus baptize with water when he was here on earth? Zero. None. His disciples did. John did, but he never baptized anybody. He baptized with the Holy Spirit of God. And we see that happening now at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And so we see clearly from these passages that the baptism of the Holy Spirit was yet to be. Just keep that in your mind. It hadn't happened yet. All right? 
It hadn't happened yet. You have his apostles. You have disciples. You have followers of Jesus Christ. You even have John the Baptist, the great prophet. We see all these things, but the baptism of the Holy Spirit has yet to happen. It has not happened yet. We're keeping that in mind on, on purpose. So the promise made of this baptism was made at the commencement of Christ's ministry, the very beginning. We also see that it was made at the conclusion of Christ's ministry. Um, look at the statement. Go back to Acts chapter 1, if you would. Acts chapter 1, look at verse number 5. Christ, he makes this promise about the baptism of the Holy Spirit there in verse number 5. Notice what he says. He's talking about John again, John the Baptist. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. We've read this several times, but here now we're making the connection. He's talking about what John had said. John had talked about what Jesus Christ was going to do. Notice several things about this promise. First of all, this baptism was to be experienced by all and not some. You see it? All that were there. I'm not talking about everybody in the world. We're talking about the believers. All, not, not some. We don't see a lit, litmus test here. We don't see you have to do this, this, and this, and this. We don't see any of that. That flies in the face of what we're hearing about some people are getting the baptism of the Holy Spirit and some aren't. No, we see all, not some. Secondly, the baptism was yet to be. He says, ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. So it was a future tense he's talking about. It hadn't already happened. Thirdly, this baptism was limited to a point of time, not many days hence. It was going to happen, not many days hence. Not many days hence, it was going to happen. This experience was going to be something that happened the day of Pentecost, and it was an amazing thing that happened that day. We'll never repeat it. We'll never have another Pentecost. It's never going to happen again. Are we ever going to have another Calvary? Is there ever going to be a need for there another resurrection, the first day of the week, first fruits? No. There's never going to be another Pentecost. It was a one-time event. It was all prophesied. It was fulfilled. And now we're enjoying the fulfillment of that prophecy. What God had said to us. This is something, if you grab onto this, it'll help you understand this and not be led astray. There, I've, I've known people in my life that have been led astray by this, these doctrines we're talking about. The doctrine of the speaking in tongues, the gifts, um, the sign gifts, and a lot of those things. So we need to be very careful about this. And so, the testimony concerning the baptism of the Holy Spirit extends from the appearance of John the Baptist to the ascension of Christ. All the way through that. And so in the first four passages, I already mentioned this earlier, that we just read from the Gospels was um, from John the Baptist. And then we see in Acts chapter 1, the Lord Christ himself speaks, um, but their testimonies are one. They agree with one another. And so in all five passages, the announcement is prophetic. So there was no baptism of the Holy Spirit previous to the Lord's ascension. None. And so we're going to stop there tonight, but I, you know, I wanted to kind of lay that out. Next week we're going to talk about the problems that are raised by this baptism. We're going to talk about the, the, the subject of the, the, the misinterpreting of it and how we are to look at it properly and really get into it. Um, but tonight I want to just stop with this. We're, we're talking about all of this, in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit of God. And the question tonight is, number one, have you been baptized by the Holy Spirit of God? And really what that is, have you been born again? Have you have the Spirit of God within you? Have you been saved? And then secondly, and it is a distinct difference, and it's not a, a baptism now at this point, but it's, it's allowing God to have all of us. We've already been baptized. The question is, does He have all of you? Are you filled with the Spirit of God? And I would just challenge you to, you know, we can sit here and say, well, their doctrine is wrong, their doctrine is wrong, their doctrine is wrong, and, and then we have to ask the question, is our life right? 
Are we living the way that we should? Um, they talk about, the, and I don't want to jump ahead, but one of the things that we're going to see is there, there's the challenge of even eternal security in all of this. And there's people that will challenge you about how can you say that you're eternally saved and live like the devil? How can you say that you're eternally saved and you have the Holy Spirit of God within you? And yet you live like the devil. And there is some truth to that. But the truth is not that you lost your salvation. The truth is, have you ever been saved? And I challenge you to, to, to examine your faith. See whether or not you are in the faith. And this is something you're going to continually hear from this pulpit as we study the Word of God. is to challenge us to make sure that you know that you're a child of God. And then, number two... Make sure that we are surrendered completely to the Spirit of God. That we are allowing Him to have complete control of our life. Let's all stand up. We'll have a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for loving us. We thank you that you allow us to study your word. Help us to have understanding. Lord, I pray that our faith would increase today. I pray that we'd be able to give an answer to any man's question. But Lord, please anoint children as we believe that today, Lord, that we would be strong in our faith. And Lord, I pray that we would understand that we have the power of your Holy Spirit in our lives. And Lord, we choose it out willingly, God, to study your word, to be empowered by you, led by you. Lord, I pray that you would challenge our hearts tonight with our heads bowed and eyes closed. If you know Christ as your Savior, trusted in Christ as your Savior. It doesn't matter what you said. What matters is what God knows. Right now, does God know you as his son or daughter? Have you been born again? If you don't know tonight, won't you trust in him? Christian, child of God, do you have the Holy Spirit of God within you? Have you quenched him? grieved him? Are you empowered by him? Are you living in your own strength and flesh? It's a very simple invitation this morning, but do you just say, Lord, I need your power in my life. Lord, I surrender myself to you. Lord, fill me. Use me. It might be some time since you've allowed God to have complete control in your spirit, your, your life, your heart. Pray tonight. Would you ask God for forgiveness or ask God to give you the strength to live? Lord, I pray that you'd move, speak to our hearts tonight. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. Listen, I invite you. If God's speaking to your heart tonight, why don't you just pray? Why don't you go to Him? Don't you offer yourself? Would you sing it with me?